Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing in this sermon series that we've been in in the book of Exodus for the past several months. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word? The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, this is uh, kind of a turning point in the book of Exodus uh, that we come to. Really, the rest of Exodus uh, is going to be concerned primarily with what starts right here. Uh, the rest of Exodus is going to be concerned primarily with Israel's worship in the tabernacle. Uh, this section is going to take up uh, really verses 25 through 31, and then there's going to be a break uh, as Moses comes down and gives the instructions. There's a little more narrative there, and then it picks up again in verse 35 through 40 uh, and repeats almost the same instructions. And so really, the rest of the book of Exodus is going to be about the tabernacle uh, in Israel's worship there. It's going to be about the tabernacle, so uh, sacred space, the priests who conducted the worship in the tabernacle, sacred people, and the Sabbath, or sacred time. And so you will perhaps uh, not be disappointed, I hope, uh, to know that we are not going to spend verse-by-verse preaching through the tabernacle uh, and every single item of its decoration. And we're not going to repeat it again, right? They basically, uh, God tells them what to do in 25 through 31, and then 35 through 40, it just tells us them doing all of the things step-by-step that he told them to do. And so there's a real tendency, I think, in preaching on this stuff, on preaching on Old Testament worship, uh, to kind of lose the forest for the trees, uh, right? To focus on uh, every individual bit of it and then miss out on the big picture of why, right? Why uh, these prescriptions for worship that can seem uh, honestly kind of strange to us? Why uh, this tabernacle? What's the theology that it supports and why did God give it to his people? And then maybe even more difficultly, how does this Old uh, Testament provision for Israel's worship Uh, What difference does it possibly make uh, for Christians living in the 21st century? And so that's what we're going to seek to do 
uh, today is why the tabernacle uh, and what does it mean for us? You know, it seems uh, unbelievably strange to modern readers that God would put uh, so much detail into this notion of how they were to build the tabernacle, essentially a traveling temple uh, that was meant to go with them wherever they went. And while it seems strange to us, it wasn't strange in the ancient world. Uh, In fact, up until very recently, uh, nearly every culture in the world built temples, right? Until a relatively uh, recent development in modern Western culture, nearly every culture had temple life. Uh, The idea that there was sacred space where the gods or God was to be worshipped is a belief that's been held in common uh, through most cultures throughout history. So something that seems very strange to us would have seemed a matter of course for Israel. They'd say, oh, of course, we need to learn uh, where we approach God and how we approach him. And that's because most people in the history of the world believe two things uh, that modern Western people have largely abandoned. Now, the first of those is that there exists a heavenly reality that's beyond what we can see, taste, touch, and measure, right? That that most of the peoples of the world have held in common a belief that, yes, there's this world. Uh, There's the world in which we see and go about and do our normal and everyday lives. But then above and beyond that world, there's a supernatural world. There's the imminent world, but then there's also a transcendent world that there's a world beyond this one. There's something more to this life than what can be seen and observed and quantified, that there's more to our lives than what can be measured. So that's the first uh, thing that we've largely abandoned. And the second idea that most cultures of the world held in common that we have forgotten is that, yes, there is this heavenly reality, but that there exists a barrier between this world and that world. Right, that there's a reason why we don't walk around in this life bumping into spiritual reality that there's a barrier that's come in between this world and that world. And if we're going to connect with divine reality, if we're going to transcend this life, we have to find a way through. We have to find a door uh, in the wall that separates this world and the next. We have to find a bridge across the chasm between transcendent reality and this world that we know. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor uh, describes this secular age that we live in. He, describes, he, he says this, he says, we've put an imminent frame around our world. And I love that phrase, the imminent frame. That we live this world as though what we can see is all that there is. That there's only the imminent, nothing transcendent. And so then, because of that, we define our problems only in terms of what can be solved within our own means and within our own availability. Right, So we define what's broken in the world as simply matters of things we can fix, politics and economics and education and morals. Right, We shrink our problems to those things that we think we can manage in this world. But the Scriptures invite us to ask, what if there's something deeper that's broken? Right, What if what's broken in our lives and in our world isn't just problems that we made and problems that we can fix? That at the very core of existence itself, there's something broken, something divorced that needs to be joined back together again. Genesis tells the story of the fall, right? That we were made for life with God. Eden in Genesis serves as a kind of a bridge, a place where God and humanity lived face to face, 
where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, where a communion between God and humanity could happen. It's described as a kind of a garden temple. And then what happens after sin enters into the picture in the fall is that humanity is exiled from that place. Right, that now at the, at, the, at, the gar, uh, at the gate of Eden, there stands an angel with a sword. Right, that humanity, our first parents, are cut off from life with God. And that every person ever since has been trying to find our way back in some way. That we long for communion. That we long for something that's been severed to be reunited and to be brought back together. We live homesick for that Eden that we were made for. C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, Weight of Glory, puts it this way. He says, Our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. The sense that in this universe we are strangers the longing to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is our true condition. And so if we're created for this union between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, and if that's severed and ripped apart uh, at the fall, much of the rest of the story of God's dealing with his people by covenant is the desire that he has that that would be stitched back together. Though what's broken would be mended, that heaven and earth would touch, and we could know God. And so, in the place of Eden, this story pushes back towards a place where God and humanity could meet together, where, uh, as he says here, that he could dwell in the midst of his people. And the first place that that happens is at Mount Sinai. Remember, for several chapters, Israel has been at the base of Mount Sinai, and God's presence descends on the mountain in cloud and in fire. And now he's going to give the instructions uh, for the tabernacle because there's this practical reality uh, that his people can't just stay at Mount Sinai, right? That if his desire is to dwell with him and, and he's on the mountain, he wants to accompany with, to go with them on their journey to the land. And so he gives them provisions for a way that he can dwell with them on the road, that he can go with them in a real uh, practical way dwelling with them. And so we have this, uh, this theme, this way that God can dwell with his people. And so you need to see a connection that exists in the Old Testament between Sinai and the tabernacle and then the temple, right? These three places function in basically the same way, the place that God meets with his people. They follow the same pattern. Sinai has this three, uh, threefold pattern by which the people approach God. The people camp out at the base and then the leaders go a little bit of the ways up, and they eat with God. Remember that last week. And then finally, there's the top of the mountain where Moses goes to meet with God. In the same way, the temple and the tabernacle have this threefold way of approaching God. There's a, it's essentially a big rectangle, and there's an outer court uh, with a basin and a fire, and they approach God at an altar there. And they approach God there, and then they go inside of a tent inside the tent that's the holy place. And then a tent inside of a tent inside of a tent, which is the Holy of Holies. And so when God tells Moses that he's to make the tabernacle according to the pattern that I set, it seems to be that God's saying there's a heavenly pattern of approach to God that we see at Sinai, and then you build in the temple, and that one day 
will be built uh, at the, tab- uh, at the t- you see in the tabernacle that will be built in the temple in Jerusalem. That these are patterns of heavenly reality on this earth. A place on this earth where Israel could taste heaven in the midst of this world. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, great 80s theologian Belinda Carlisle's song. Do you remember that song? Ooh, baby, you know what that's worth? Heaven is a place on earth. You remember that? Some of you are shaking your head like this. Um, But that's actually a fairly good, concise theology of the tabernacle. Uh, It was meant to be heaven on earth. It was meant to be this place where you didn't have to wait for some other world to taste heaven, that heaven had an outpost, had an embassy on this world, a place where you could go and taste heaven, where you could approach God, a place where this creation and that world met again. And so we get these commands. The people are commanded to bring all of the best stuff they had, their jewels, their stones, their fine metals, uh, their fine cloths, uh, the skin of some of their livestock. They were to come and bring the stuff of creation, the good stuff of this world, so that it could be made into a little microcosm of heaven, a bridge between heaven and earth, a living taste of heaven. And then there, right in the center of this bit of heaven, uh, the center of the Holy of Holies was two things. One, you had the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But there in the Ark where uh, the text of the covenant was placed, the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna and Aaron's staff, a place where these symbols of God's covenant with his people would be placed. And then on top of it was to be placed what's called the mercy seat. Uh, a solid gold cover, covered with two angels whose wings met. I'm going to read that little section here of uh, Exodus 25, starting in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, or angels, of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are, from the ark, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So at the very center of uh, the temple and the tabernacle was to be this solid gold, uh, what's called a mercy seat. And here uh, in this inner place, sometimes it's called God's footstool. Uh, the idea is that this was God sat on his throne And that his feet sat on the mercy seat. That it was actually God's presence that filled the tabernacle and the temple. And that for for God's people to approach God, what had to happen was divine mercy. Right? That we can't just uh, walk into God's house. We can't just walk into God's presence anytime we feel like it uh, and just stroll on in. That there's a process of approach that has to happen. And core to that process is mercy. Because of the holiness of God and our sinfulness, that at the center of this bit of heaven on earth had to be God's mercy. 
And not just anyone could walk in uh, to the place of the mercy seat. Only the priest, uh, the high priest, and then only once a year could go in to the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And they would go in and they would sprinkle this golden seat with blood from the sacrifice. Because remember, outside of Eden, there's an angel with a flaming sword, right? Approaching God means dealing with God's judgment. It means coming to him as a sinner and that judgment has to fall somewhere. And so this whole tabernacle system, the temple system, is a way of recognizing that there has to be the shedding of blood. That for us to approach God, his wrath has to be satisfied. Either the animals or our own. And so the priest, uh, with fear and trembling and a rope tied around his waist in case he happened to die while in the Holy of Holies, would go in and offer a sacrifice to remember that the God of the universe dwelled with his people, dwelt with his people uh, by mercy alone. Now, we need to be careful uh, on this point, right? All of these ceremonies, all of the sacrifices, the elaborate temple, uh, it can seem to us like Israel's worship is just really outdated and a little bit barbaric, honestly, right? This God that needs to be approached by blood, uh, this God that needs to be approached by ceremony and ritual. Uh, We're prone to think, not just as modern people, but as Christians, that all of this sounds uh, really legalistic, uh, really ritualistic, and that they're kind of foolish for thinking this. But we have to remember, this is what God told them to do, right? This wasn't just some man-made system that they came up with to approach God. This wasn't some superstitious belief about how to approach God. This was the command of God. This was God saying, I promise to meet with you in this place, in this way. I promise to provide forgiveness for your sins in this particular way. And so this was their life with God. Guys, this is why the exile was such a huge deal in the life of Israel. For them, uh, for God's presence to leave the temple, for them ultimately to be kicked out of the Holy Land, it wasn't just that they lost their home or they lost their nations, they lost God. They lost the place where they knew they could go and meet with God. And so when we read the critique of the prophets throughout the Old Testament, They do critique the temple system, but it's not because they were wrong to do it. They're they're critiquing the corruption of the priests. They're critiquing uh, the way that Israel substituted religious formalism for the substance of obedience and faith. But they're not critiquing the temple itself. They understood that God needed a place to dwell with his people by his mercy. This is why during the exile, Ezekiel towards the end of that uh, book, has this incredible vision of a greater temple, right? A temple uh, out of which flows a water that, that waters the entire world. That the temple actually expands to take up the whole city of Jerusalem and all the nations stream into it. This is the reason that after the exile under Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, the people go to rebuild the temple, right? Because they knew their hope was that if we get back to the land, if we, had a, if we have a Davidic king, and we rebuild the temple, we can dwell with God again. And it's why we get the tragic and heartbreaking story at the end of that project. Remember the old people of Israel sitting around the new temple and weeping. And they're not weeping tears of joy. They're weeping because the temple isn't what it's supposed to be, that it's not what it it was meant to be. And this, of course, sets the stage for Jesus' claims about himself. John chapter 1, verse 14, the, world, the Word became flesh 
and dwelt. Uh, this is the Greek word that translates tabernacle. The, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That God made a new tabernacle. In the body of Jesus, a new place was made where heaven and earth could meet. Where the two worlds that had been separated by sin could come back together again. This is why if you look at the accounts of Jesus' trial, the main evidence that's brought before Jesus at his trial is people who say, this man said, in Matthew 26, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. That he was speaking of himself. That it was a scandal to the people of Israel that Jesus would say, it's no longer in the temple, but in my own body, where heaven and earth can meet. That Jesus is the way that we approach the Father. No longer in need of temples and tabernacles and mountains. So, the New Testament does two major things with this image of the tabernacle. It's, it says that it's fulfilled in Christ, right? That Jesus himself is the summation of the tabernacle. And that by the outpouring of his spirit, that the church exists as a living temple of his spirit. So we want to look at those two things briefly. That Christ and his church are the tabernacle, the place where heaven and earth can meet. Because Jesus is where heaven and earth meet, friends, you and I don't have to try to struggle to find our way to God. Right? Jesus has said, I'm the bridge. I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the place that this world touches the next. Think about that. In some ways, this, this goes above and beyond even the claim that Jesus is God, right? Which is so core to the Christian confession, right? That Jesus in himself is the word made flesh, God himself in, human, uh, in humanity. But he's saying, I'm not just God, I'm the way to God, right? I'm not just the God on the other side of the wall, I'm the door through the wall to get to God. I'm just not the God, the reality on the other side of the chasm, I'm the bridge from this side of the chasm to the other, that God himself became for us the way to God. That God didn't leave us to ourselves to try to find our own way back to him. But he said, I'll lay down my life so that the two can become one. So that this world and the next world can touch and taste. The way to approach God is no longer climbing a mountain to get to the top of Sinai. It's no longer walk, uh, walking through all of the different parts of the temple, the washing and the sacrifice and the table and the lamps and all of it, right? That Jesus fulfills all of it. He is God and he's the way we approach God. And so, friends, God is close to us. And the way we approach him is very simple, by repentance and faith. Repentance, laying down our sin, confessing our wandering simple faith, Jesus, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your sacrifice to atone for my own sin. He's become the way for us to bridge from earth to heaven. And then maybe, uh, I mean, if that weren't incredible enough, he tells us as his church, you now are a living temple. That just as Jesus and his body was where heaven and earth touch, now you are where heaven and earth meet. You are an embassy of heaven in the midst of this world. 1 Peter chapter 2, you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. You're being built into a temple 
where God's glory, His Spirit, fills it so that you carry out with you the presence of God in a world that wonders if He's real. To be a people filled with life in a world filled with death, a people of mercy and love in a world of hatred and division, a a people of moral clarity and conviction in a world of confusion. That we carry that with us as we go. One day the entire world will be filled with God's presence. That's the incredible promise of Revelation. If you look at Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation uh, uh, 21 continues, verses uh, 22 through 25. John's vision, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. That's where the story is heading. That the world broken at Eden will be knit back together as one. The glory of God filling and covering this world completely so there is no more temple. And until then, we live, the church lives. Uh, as a, one, uh, one theologian puts it this way, I love this description, that the church exists as a trailer for the coming attraction that is the kingdom of God. That we're a foretaste, as Paul would put it, of what one day will be true of the entire world. That the world is meant to look at us and say, oh, that's something of what heaven is going to be like. That's something of what we were made for and something that we await. Friends, this is why the holiness of the church matters so much. This is why it matters so much that the church, life in the church, actually be different than life in the world. It's why it's important that we learn to follow Jesus in every bit of our lives so that when uh, the world is, uh, is you know, hell-bent on walking off a cliff, we can say, no, no, there's another way to live. There's another way to order our relationships and to handle our bodies and our money and our neighborhoods and our families. This is why Jesus says, come, learn from me. Right? Let me teach you how to live. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm showing you another way to be human in this world. It's why, uh, it's why it's important that we learn to love one another, that we learn to relate to one another in a different way than we relate to each other in the world. When the world's busy yelling at each other across unbridgeable divides, it's important for us to learn to bear with one another, to lay down our lives for one another, to reconcile with one another, to show the world that a different way of human community is really possible. Bill Sauter, I love this story, he's one of the men uh, who for decades worked uh, as a part of excavating the wreckage of the Titanic. Remember, uh, you've seen the movie, Titanic. Um, This wreckage that exists at the bottom of the ocean, of the the most beautiful ocean liner uh, that had been ever made up to that time. And all through the 1990s, uh, there was a massive work to bring up uh, some of the wreckage and to create uh, more of an accurate memory of what happened there. Bill Sauter was one of these men, and according to his description, everything that comes up from the bottom of the seafloor 
is wet and rotten and dead. He says that uh, when it made life in this laboratory where they brought it all in almost unbearable because the stench was so bad. He said it just smelled like wet, rotten death. That does not sound like a fun work environment. But he describes what happened one day when they brought up a small leather pouch filled with these vials of perfume. Uh, historians had known for some time of, of a man named Adolf Salfed. He was a, a, a German uh, perfumer, a chemist, who was coming to the New World to try to begin uh, a perfuming business. And he brought samples with him, and he actually survived the, uh, the wreckage, and he got off the ship, but he left his perfume samples. Sauter describes what happened when they pulled... Uh, these perfumes up, and they opened them in the lab. And he said, all of a sudden, the lab was filled with the most beautiful smells of flowers and fresh lavender, fruits. The way he describes it in this documentary is that it was like the scent of heaven wafted through this room full of death. And he said everyone there almost had tears in their eyes because this old world, this world that had been dead, suddenly was as fresh as the day that it went down, as fresh as the day that it was made. The scent of heaven filling this room of death. What a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to be. That we are meant to be the very aroma of heaven, the aroma of God's grace and love and mercy in our city in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of business. That by the scent of our lives, the world would learn that death is not all there is. That resurrection life is breaking out in the midst of a world of death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that that uh, is our story, that your life has broken out from the death uh, of this world that you have filled our lives with your spirit and you've empowered us to live as an outpost of heaven here in this world. Lord, we acknowledge that so often we smell so much like the rest of the world. We acknowledge, uh, Lord, we are not much better. Our, the same sins that are out there and here, our lust and our greed and our pride and our prejudice. Um, Lord, help us to lay those things down at your feet. Lord, help us to come once again to your mercy seat and to receive grace for our sin and to drink of your spirit uh, so that as we go, we might uh, be within ourselves the reality of the world to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.